you've got your Bibles, take them and turn them to Matthew chapter 25. This morning we are continuing this series of Jesus' tweets. Short, less than 140 character sayings of Jesus that had a major impact on our world or our understanding of Him or of His mission or of God. And today we're talking about one of the most difficult. Now, let me just frame where we're going today. In Matthew chapter 25, we're going to look at one of the last teachings that Jesus does in the book of Matthew before he enters into Passion Week, before he enters into his final week on earth. And what happened with Jesus, particularly in the book of Matthew, is as he gets closer to Jerusalem, as he gets closer to that last week, as he gets closer to the crucifixion and the resurrection, he starts amping up what he's saying and the difficulty of what he's telling people. It's almost as if he realizes that he's got a short amount of time and the days of sugarcoating things are over. Not not that Jesus was ever really accused of sugarcoating, right? But he gets even more bold. In fact, uh, just some tweets, if you will, that he sends out. We're not going to cover in this series, but you could as he marches towards this moment. Uh, back in uh, a few chapters earlier, he, he talks to this guy that comes up to him that's determined to follow him and have eternal life. And he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler. I thought y'all would fill that in for me, but you... Obviously, you were waiting on me, all right? And so to the rich young ruler, what does he say to him? He says, go sell everything. Give it to the poor. You have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. He says to him, this is it. This is what you have to do. Now, this guy's coming in order to feel better about himself. And he walks in and he says, Jesus, now... Basically, what he's saying is, I've done everything I'm supposed to. You just tell me I'm okay. And Jesus says, you're not. Sell it all. You know what all means, right? All. Is that a hard sentence? Yeah, it is. If I mean, if I came to you and I said, Jack and Sue, the word has given me, the Lord has given me a word. Everything you have, sell it. You're thinking, I'm just glad he didn't pick me. Right? He starts amping up. It's not, well, go give 15% or maybe, I mean, I know it's a tough financial time for you. And even though you've got a lot of money, you're worried about the coming economy and the crisis that could happen. And you see this recession's coming out, but you're a little concerned that it might dip again. So just give about 15%. No, he says, give it. All. Well, then some of his disciples start getting concerned. They hear all this stuff and they realize it must be getting close. And the mother of them comes. Now, aren't you glad mothers don't ever get involved in the business of their children? Some of y'all aren't looking at me right now at all. And the mothers come. Now, think about this. The mother comes to Jesus and says, now, Jesus, listen. My boys have been with you. I just want to make sure you're going to take care of them. When it's your turn to be in the kingdom, I think my boys would be perfect right-hand men for you. Right? 
Jesus says, you don't know what, I, what you're asking for. And the boys go, oh, yeah, we do. We have, we're, we're good. And then Jesus looks at them and says, no, no, no. Whoever among you wants to be the greatest must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That, that's still countercultural and strange. Amen? You don't read any of that in leadership books. Well, if it is, it's like chapter 18 after they tell you everything else that needs to happen. Well, then Jesus starts sparring with his conversational enemies. The Pharisees. That have come and started to ask questions and ask things about it. And Jesus starts to give them some instructions about what it means. And he says to them, Pharisees, you that have completed your entire life, have, have gone your entire life trying to make sure that your righteousness will get you into heaven. It's not going to work because the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going in before you. It's a good way to kick off a deacon's meeting, isn't it? All of y'all are going to the other place, but these prostitutes on the street, they're going to heaven. I assure you, <laughs> that's kind of bold, right? Tax collectors and prostitutes are eating the kingdom of heaven before you. That would have been shocking awe for them, all right? And then, just a few verses later, he says to them, Pharisees, have you never read the scriptures? What did the Pharisees do? All the time they read the scriptures and he gives them a quote of scripture. And then he says, the kingdom of God's going to be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. Here's what's happening. Jesus realizes it doesn't matter how bold I am because the cross is before me. And as the cross is before me, it's time for me to lay on the table what life is truly about. And then we get to Matthew 24, and we're not going to read through 24 and 25. We're just going to go right to the end of 25 in a minute. But what we have when we get there is one of the disciples says, Lord, we need to know when this is all getting settled. When's all this going to get settled? We have this famous uh, speech on the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, Jesus begins to predict several things. He starts to predict end times. He starts to predict the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming in 70 A.D. He begins to talk about signs of the end of the age. He talks about the Great Tribulation. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man. He does the parable of the fig tree. He says nobody knows this is going to happen. And then he gives three parables in a row or the last one which we're going to talk about something is not a parable it's an actual story but the point is that he gives three stories in a row that kind of give three aspects of his coming in and the first one is the parable of the ten virgins and you can go back and read that but the whole point of that is Jesus is coming be ready then he tells the parable of the talents and he says because Jesus is coming be risky it's okay to risk for the Lord. It's all right to do things for Him and go out and attempt to do things for the glory and the honor of His name. Be ready, be risky. And then this one we're going to look at today, He basically says, but you better be right. Verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory. What's He talking about there? Second coming, right? First coming was understated. The first coming was a sneak attack, a baby in a manger. The second one will not be. 
When He comes in His glory and all the angels are with Him, He will sit on the throne of His glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him. Here's what's interesting about that. In just a few chapters, Matthew is going to give us one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture when Jesus says, you are to be my witnesses and you are to go and you are to baptize of all nations. Exact same phrase here that is there. This is every people group, every tribe, every language are going to be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from his goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, leave it right there for just a minute, because I want to focus for a minute on what's going on here. We need to understand that what's happening here is what some call a prophecy, some call a parable, but I like to call it a prophet parable. That's a word I just invented, like right now, all right? Or a paraphrase. It's both. It is a prophecy of what is to come, but there's rich language. It's imaginative. It's a metaphor. The final event. Here's why I say it's both. I do believe that Jesus is going to judge the nations. I do believe he's coming again. But I don't think that we will look like sheep and goats in the midst of it. It'll be us, right? But he's using this language, this vivid language, to give us an idea. And Jesus is coming again. The Bible teaches that when human history has run its course, when God says it's time, that God will bring an end to all of this through his son. And on that day, everything in heaven and earth will be set right. The final judgment of human beings will spend their eternity with God or separated from him, depending on the choices that they've made. Let's be honest, our world doesn't like to think through those kind of things too much. But the Bible makes it clear that it's coming. The truth is, most cultures through the history of time have believed a judgment day is coming. In fact, polls suggest that almost 80% of Americans still think there will be a day of reckoning. On that day, the Bible tells us, Jesus will be the judge. About once a week, Jeff and I try to go out for lunch. And there are weeks that Alan's able to join us and weeks that Alan's not. But when three of us try to get together and go to lunch. And here, here's what I'll tell you. Jeff and I uh, have been to lunch almost every week. We miss a week here and there, but almost every week for uh, the last couple of years. And for whatever reason, strange things happen almost every week with Jeff and I. I'm not sure it's of our appearance. I don't know what people, I don't know if we give off that vibe. Some people will say, if strange things are happening to you every week, that must mean that you are strange, right? So every week we're kind of, now part of it is our radars are kind of up and we're kind of looking at it. In fact, um, we've had people go to lunch with us and strange things happen to them while they're with us. It's just weird. But this week we were out eating. And this isn't really that strange. It just caught me off guard a little bit. This guy walked by, and on one arm, he had a short sleeve shirt on, on one arm, it said, Judges Me. Tattoo, huge. I could read it across the room. So naturally, I'm thinking, well, there's got to be something on the other arm. And so I spend the next 10 minutes trying to catch him at the angle that I can see. What's on the other arm? The proper thing would probably go, hey, man, let me just see what's on your arm. But and he finally he finally moves around and I see and it says only one judges me. Okay, now 
you've heard that before, right? Only, only God is my judge. Now, now, most people say that, you know, when they say that, they say that when they're doing things they know aren't really right and they don't want you to point out that they're doing things that aren't really right. And here's what I would say to them, people that say only Jesus judges or only God judges me, is I'm not sure that's the one you want. Right? He knows all. Remember, what does all mean? Everything. Jesus is the judge, and the truth is, he is the one that will set it right and to decide. that The word judge actually means to divide. And in this passage, he separates the sheep from the goats. Now, I read a lot this week, and I'll tell you, nobody really knows why you sheep and goats. In their day, in their area, they looked similar. You couldn't tell them apart very much. And the, the goats couldn't survive the cold, so they had to be separated from the sheep at night. It, it was just a practice that happened. But I don't know that there's any internal significance about one being sheep and one being goats. What tells us that one's good and one's not is not that it's sheep and it's goats. It's that one is on the right and one is on the left. Because we know all left is wrong. Any left-handers in the crowd today? Yeah, I know. By the way, you know what the Latin word for left is? Sinister. That, I'm, that you look it up. All right. You got Charles Dixon's got my back right here. Are you a sinister person? He's left-handed. That's right. So anything that's on the left is considered bad. Anything on the right is considered good. Now I know for me, I just switched that up, but I'm doing it for you. All right. This is I know my right from my left. And he separates them. We don't have the time to get into discussion here about all that comes after this in heaven and hell, although it's evident in this passage. But here's what happens after he separates. You can go on the next slide. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, before we go on, let me just say this. The, the phrase, they're blessed by my father, is an intentional phrase. Because if you remember 20 chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starts this sermon on the mount and he says, blessed are. And he talks about all the things in the Beatitudes, those who are blessed. And the idea there is that those who are blessed are the ones that have been changed, that have been made right by God and are now living according to the way God intends for them to live. It's not that their actions bring blessings. It's that God has blessed them. And because of the blessing God has put in their life, they are now acting in accordance with what God God intended for them to do. It says, come you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he tells them why. For I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they say to him, when did we do that? Next verse says that the righteous answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and close you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit? And go to the next one. Jesus will look at him and say, the king, I assure you. And here's the tweet for the week. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he looks at the ones on his left. 
As he looks at the ones on his left, their news is not as good. He will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, we don't have time to get into the whole theology of hell here, but understand that this is a symbolic picture that that you ask me, will there be eternal fire in hell? The answer is, I don't really know and I don't want to find out. What I do know is that hell is a place prepared for those who have rejected God and will live eternally separated from Him. And there is no greater torment or torture in the world than to be separated from God and His influence in this world. He says, for I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. And they too will say, when did that happen? We missed that. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger without clothes or sick or in prison and not help? And he answers them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. And the last verse says, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to look right at that phrase in the middle, the the one that was highlighted, the the tweet that was there, that whatever you have done unto the least of these, you have done unto me. And I want to ask three questions. And the first question I want to ask may seem very basic, and it's simply this. Who are the least of these? Who's he talking about? Now, it turns out that's not as easy of a question as we would think. The traditional understanding is that the least of these simply refers to the poor and needy in the world. And that's the simplest reading. But and it would show Jesus concern for the poor that is there throughout. But some people believe that Jesus is referring specifically to his followers who are poor and needy. And in particular, those who are poor and needy because of their loyalty to him. He, he uses the phrase brothers. And Jesus used that term all the time to describe the disciples. Now, here's the truth. Whatever interpretation you land on, and I tend to favor the first one, which is the idea that it is for all needy of all times and all places. It's clear Jesus has in mind people who, for one reason or another, are needy and vulnerable. A couple of years ago, a guy wrote a book that detailed, just in the world right now, some of the difficulties that are there. He tells us, Jesus talks about those that are hungry, and that one out of every seven people in the world don't have enough to eat. One of every four children in developing countries are underweight and nine million people a year die of hunger related causes. Leads to all other kinds of problems. You're hungry, you can't work, you can't go to school, you can't play, your body can't fight disease and you can't bear and raise healthy children. Every day, every hour is devoted to finding food when you're hungry. Jesus mentions the thirsty. Imagine waking up every morning with no access to good water, drinking, cooking, washing. Imagine spending four or five hours every day just walking to get water for your family, carrying it on buckets on the top of your head. And then imagine that the water you brought home is teeming with bacteria and parasites and illness. It's a daily reality for 1.2 billion people 
in the world. There are those that have need, that are materially poor. Jesus talks about them. I need clothes. The average American lives on $100 a day. A billion people in our world live on less than $1 a day. To give you an idea, it's not hard math, it would take many people in our world, a billion people in our world, a hundred days to spend what most Americans spend in one. Some of you have been, and I have been, to places in the world where a dollar a day might be optimistic. When you see places just kind of put together. It talks about the sick. In U.S. and Europe, two out of every thousand children die before their fifth birthday. In Africa, 165 out of every thousand won't make it to their fifth. If you were to talk about all the children who have been orphaned because of the AIDS epidemic, they have them hold hands. The chain of children would stretch from New York to L.A. five times over. The hungry, the thirsty, the poor, the sick. We haven't even talked about the refugees and the prisoners, but these are the kind of people Jesus is talking about. These are the least of these, the most needy and vulnerable people in the world. And they're not just across the border in developing countries. They're right here as home as well in our cities and our suburbs. And according to Jesus, this is what Jesus says, our response to those people determines whether or not we're welcomed into the kingdom. So here's the next question, not just who are the least of these, but what does he expect of us? And here's what I think he expects of us, and I think the passage outlines it. Jesus expects of us to feel the same way he feels about the needy and the vulnerable. In fact, if those statistics make you uncomfortable and disturbed, that's a good thing, because those statistics are uncomfortable and disturbing to God as well. On the Gospels, we see Jesus again and again moved with compassion. Many times we see Him stop what He's doing to relieve someone's suffering. He is disturbed by the exploitation or the neglect of people created in the image of God. People that He had a hand in created. Jesus feels the same way. When Jesus refers to these brothers and sisters of mine, He is expressing His identification with the needy and the vulnerable. Remember, Jesus was born to parents who didn't have a good place to go when He was born. They couldn't even get in the end, so they had Him in a stable. He began His life as a refugee, being sent to Egypt to get away from the destruction and the death and the murder that was coming. He, worked in, he grew up in a working class family, and as an adult, He says, He had no place to lay His head. He was rejected by his own people, abandoned by his followers, brutally beaten by sadistic soldiers, executed for crimes he didn't commit, and buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus knows what it means to be needy and vulnerable. He knows what it means. This is hard to even imagine. He knows what it means to be a least of these. He feels a kinship to them, but that can be hard for us. As Americans in a comfortable place and comfortable homes where our struggles about can we get those new shoes instead of can I even have a pair of shoes to begin with. And all around the world, people are suffering. That book I mentioned asked the question, what if we woke up this morning and found that 100 different jet airliners had crashed and over 26,000 people had been killed last night? Now, you know how much we're looking for one plane, right? 
Imagine the grief and the outrage. Imagine all that is happening. Imagine the outpouring of money and volunteers and catastrophe. But the truth is, 26,500 children die every day of preventable diseases related to poverty. Every day. We ought to be grieved, disturbed, and angered about that. God expects of us to do something about what we can around where we are and to serve those who can do nothing for us in return. It means that we are part of the ministry of the mundane. It means that we are part of being allowing ourselves to be interrupted on occasion. That our schedules aren't the most important things in the world, that interruptions are allowed. It allows us, we need to know our own limitations and our own embrace our shortcomings and realize that we are not all powerful, but we can do something. Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these. The righteous in the story are commended because they did something. They fed somebody. They gave someone a drink. They welcomed a stranger. They put clothes on someone's back. They took care of someone who was sick. They visited someone who was locked up. Notice they didn't do everything. They did something. They didn't solve the world's hunger problems. They didn't rid the world of a disease. They did what they could where they were with what they had. And that's what God asks of us. So here's the third question I want to ask. Not just who are the least of these and what does Jesus expect of me, but what if I fail? What if we don't do the good that we need to the least of these? When you read the text, what does it say happens? It says that we deny Christ, that we reject him, that we betray him. Choose whatever word you want to. It doesn't make it less serious. What I don't want you to do is to wrestle with this passage of Scripture today and just walk away from it and say, Whew, I'm glad he's done talking about that because that is uncomfortable and I don't want to think about it. Here's what he means. Jesus says that our response to the needy and invulnerable is in fact an expression of our response to him. When we turn our backs on them, we turn our backs on him. Now, now, understand, this text is not telling us that we are saved by our good deeds. Jesus is not saying that as long as we are generous to the poor and needy, as long as we go visit people in prison, that's not what he is saying, that we'll get into the kingdom. We need over the rest of Scripture that we are saved by our virtue of a relationship with Jesus Christ, by trusting him to forgive us of our sins, to make us new people. Jesus himself said that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The hard saying is simply teaching us that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of him, then This is how you will act. It's not a question of whether you will or not. It is if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, then your heart will break for the things that break his heart. Then your life will be shown to what it looks like to live as if Jesus were living and walking among us today. That you will care about the things he cares about and you will do the things that he has done. Someone says it's not what you believe that matters. It's what you believe enough to do that matters. Or as James put it in chapter 2, verse 14 of his book, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Some years ago, a well-known worship leader and songwriter went to visit Mother Teresa and her missionaries of charity in Calcutta. 
And we got there. This was several years ago. He had a cassette tape. How many of you remember cassette tapes? So you're like, cassette tapes? I remember eight tracks. What are you talking about? He took a cassette tape over with him and gave her the cassette tape. Told her about the explosion of worship in the church and gave it to her and said, I want you to listen. It's amazing what God's doing. And she seemed unimpressed. He said, I thought you might be able to use some of these songs in your worship. And she gave him the cassettes back and says, I don't have any music players and we don't ever sing. And the worship leader looked at her and said, well, then how do you worship? What do you do for worship? And she said, well, Jesus told us how to love and worship him. And then she said, when you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. And she looked at the worship leader and said, if you really want to worship, pour out your love on the needy. This is the last thing Jesus says before Passion Week in the book of Matthew. Generally, you need to pay attention to how people end their teaching ministry. This is his last lecture before he enters into the week. And so here's my question to you, because the truth is, if your life is not characterized by the consistent care and devotion and concern for the least of these, then you must ask yourself the question, am I a follower of Jesus Christ or have I been a pretender all along? Again, it's not going to save you to go to the prison ministry. And it's not going to save you to go find some people that are hungry and to feed them. But it is evidence that Jesus has changed your heart. So what about you? If they were dividing sheep and goats in here today, which place would you fall? I could have you make the sound. But we're not in preschool, right? Where do you fall? Let me ask you a question, because most of us in this room have been part of a church for a long time. I won't ask how long, but a long time. When's the last time you took a good hard look at how you're living and your attitude when it comes to following Christ and to serving others? What I've found in my life is the longer I live with Christ, sometimes the harder it is for me not to become cynical and chastising. And dismissive when it comes to the least of these. That's unacceptable when it comes to following Christ. When's the last time you took a hard look at your attitude towards the least of these? Let's pray.